In Christian circles, we have language where we talk about our spiritual gifts. For those of you unfamiliar with spiritual gifts, a spiritual gift is the way, the way God has wired you or made you and gifted you to pursue mission and ministry in the church. There's even assessments that you can take to learn about your spiritual gifts and how you can plug into different ministries around the church and around the community. These assessments are, are helpful for some to discern uh, maybe where God's calling them in ministry. And for others, it's quite clear where they're gifted and where they're not gifted and they don't need an assessment. For me, I'm quite confident, I don't need an assessment, that I have the spiritual gift of curiosity. This is a gift that I've had since I was young. You can ask my parents or my grandparents, and they would tell you about my spiritual gift. They may not refer to it as a gift, but there's no doubt that it's there. I remember on separate occasions riding in the vans with both my grandfathers, and I had this deep desire within me to learn what every knob, lever, button, and switch did in both of their vehicles. My curiosity was incessant. They would tell you my tinkering was incessant. Later in my childhood, I would always be right next to my father whenever he was working on a project, observing and watching how he took things apart and put them back together, observing and sometimes touching and frustrating the process. And then when I joined the staff here at ECC, it became clear very early that my curiosity and my desire to ask questions was far greater than anyone else on staff. I wanted to know everything about our ministry, why we did what we did, how we got to where we are today, where we're going in the future. And it became clear early on that my curiosity was seen sometimes as critical. So I even had to preface a lot of my questions with, honestly, this is just a question, because I wanted to understand the full breadth and depth of our ministry here. Rather than assuming I know and understand how things work, I ask questions to gain further clarity. This is how I navigate life, and it has given me the opportunity to dive deeper into relationships, to gain deeper understanding of how the world around me works. When preparing for this message, I did some research into the study of curiosity. I read some of the book titled, Why, What Makes Us Curious, written by Mario Livio. In Livio's book, I, I learned that there's a spectrum that curiosity exists on. On one side of the spectrum is perceptual curiosity. On the other side of the spectrum is epistemic curiosity. Perceptual curiosity is when you experience something that's truly novel, that you didn't understand why that happened, and you desire to dive deeper into that specific thing. Epistemic curiosity, on their side, is the opposite. It's just the desire to dive deeper into knowing and learning and growing. Epistemic curiosity is what Einstein referred to when he told one of his biographers, I have no special talents. I'm only passionately curious. I recall a sermon I preached a while back where I likened myself to Michael Jordan, the amazing basketball player, because he and I are the same height. In fact, that particular reference in that particular sermon, I have no really recollection of why I referenced that similarity, but other people have recalled that reference more than any other sermon I preached. Well, today, I would like to compare myself to Albert Einstein, because I, too, am passionately curious. 
This genuine curiosity is also a trait that we find in Jesus. In the life and ministry of Jesus, we see him extending over 300 questions in regular conversations. Questions to gain clarity, questions to understand someone's perspective, questions to remove shame and guilt from someone, questions to show the deep, deep love of the Father for those around him. There are so many stories throughout the Gospels about Jesus and how he would lead in the conversation with a question. Jesus, one with the Father, understanding everything there is to understand, yet still asking many questions. If Jesus has this divine understanding, why then did he ask so many questions? And that's what we're going to explore today. In Dan White Jr.'s book, Love Over Fear, chapter 8 is titled, Compassionate Curiosity. In this chapter, White encourages us to ask more questions, to be truly inquisitive in how we approach life. He says, when you find yourself about to make a statement, turn it into a question. For example, when you find yourself wanting to say, this steak is really good, instead ask, what makes this steak really good? Then listen for the answers or look for the answers yourself. He says, you'll start to notice things you never did. White encourages us to do this with all of our encounters. By turning statements into questions, we create space for conversations and for relationships. Clay Christensen, a professor at Harvard Business School, says questions are places in your mind where answers fit. If you haven't asked the question, the answer has nowhere to go. It hits your mind and bounces off. You have to ask the question. You have to want to know in order to open up the space for the answer to fit. Personally, I believe this is applicable in building relationships as well. We have to open up the space for those new relationships to fit into our lives. After church, if we go up to the people we know and don't approach new people, we don't open up any space for new relationships to grow and flourish. If we don't provide this space, then the relationships don't grow. It requires us to enter into new territory, asking new questions, and opening space for new conversations. We see this reframing of knowledge into questions in the ministry and life of Jesus. Although Jesus is all-knowing God, creator of the cosmos who has numbered every hair on our heads, he still asks questions, and lots of them, throughout his whole ministry, all the way up to his death on the cross. The story we're going to enter into today is the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. As you heard in the reading, Jesus knows all about this woman's story, yet he still engages her in conversation and even asks her for a drink. Throughout this whole sermon series, we have celebrated this foundational truth that while we were God's enemies, God loved us, he reconciled us to himself in Jesus Christ. God loved us and reconciled us to himself in Jesus. And this is truly good news because it reminds us that wherever we are on our journey with Christ, we are loved and reconciled to God. 
wherever we find ourselves in relationship to faith and discovering what a relationship with Jesus Christ really looks like for us personally, we are still loved and we are still reconciled to Christ. So let's jump into our story for today, found in the gospel of Jesus Christ according to John. John chapter 4 verse 1 reads, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. This is a common element in all of the gospel narratives. The religious leaders in the community that Jesus was navigating through were watching him and seeing that he was gaining traction, that he was upsetting the social and cultural norms that existed. All of a sudden there's a new leader and they are no longer seen as the primary leader and so they watch Jesus. Jesus hears of their awareness, of their awareness and decides to return to Galilee. So here's a map to help you understand the story. Jesus is currently preaching and teaching in Judea at the south end of that map. He decides after he hears that they're aware of his gaining popularity to go back to Galilee, which is at the north end of the map. The most direct route would be go straight through to the north as the green arrow indicates on the map. But as indicated by the dotted gray line, the traditional route would have been to cross the Jordan River at the southern end of Samaria, walk up the bank, and then cross back over once you're on the northern end of Samaria. This was the traditional route because there was great effort taken to avoid Samaria and to avoid all of the people that resided there. The tension that existed between the Jews and the Samaritan was deeply rooted in their culture and everyone was aware of that tension. Samaritans and Jews did not want to associate with each other, so the Jews would seek an alternate route, even if it meant a much longer and potentially more difficult journey. Growing up, I remember vividly conversations with adults in my life who would be giving me directions from one specific location to another inside of the town where I grew up. And I recall vividly that they would give me directions from this point to this point when it was clear that there was a road that went between the two. Their directions tended to weave around the outskirts to get from one point to the next. And so they would give directions that avoided the dangerous parts of town or the dangerous people within our town. So when I read in in the story today about people avoiding Samaria, I kind of read the context of the story today, it made very good sense to me. But another reality for me growing up, I suspect that most of the people did not have first-hand experiences in those parts of town that were dangerous to justify the directions that they took to get through town. Growing up, you would hear, this is the way you go, you avoid this part of town because it's dangerous. But first-hand experience was not always something that they had. Yet that we would continue to then give directions that followed that same outer route because that's what we had been given. But this also leaves the possibility that our perception of danger in those parts of town or with those types of people was not entirely accurate. The Jews in Jesus' time would have avoided Samaria and they, because they desired to avoid Samaritans so much that they'd rather cross the Jordan River twice than walk through the city. It's interesting to consider this story found in John's Gospel with the story of the Good Samaritan found in Luke's Gospel. 
Luke chapter 10, we see an expert of the law questioning Jesus in a public forum. He asked Jesus what he has to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus responds to him with a question. He says, what is written in the law and how do you read it? The man, being an expert of the law, understood and answered very quickly, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus told me to do a great job answering the question, now go forth and do that and you will live. But the story continues because the religious leader, the, the expert in the law, wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who then is my neighbor? To which Jesus then tells a story, a very tragic story about a man who was going through town and robbers caught up to him and stole his clothing and beat him and left him half dead on the side of the road. In Jesus' story, the first person to happen upon this bruised and battered person was a priest. And instead of helping this poor person, he walked across the street, went up the side of the road, and continued on his way, completely avoiding the problem. But then a Levite comes, happened to be traveling along the same road as well. So the reader would expect that he would intervene for the least of these, and he too crosses the street and goes up the other side. And then a Samaritan comes into the story. He sees this man and takes, has mercy on him. He cleans and bandages his wounds. He puts him upon his donkey and brings him to an inn and took care of him. Jesus then finishes this story and asks the man, which one of these three do you suppose was the neighbor? And the expert answers rightly, that it was the one who had mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. This parable that Jesus tells in Luke's gospel is eye-opening to the reader and to the listener because of the stigma that existed around Samaria and Samaritans. The parable goes to show that the stereotype that the Jews had about Samaritans was not entirely correct. In fact, the priest and the Levite, whom they would have assumed would have stopped and helped the least of these, also didn't stop, so it continually upset the stereotypes that they had in their mind. And all of this is at play in our story today as well. We read a very brief statement in John chapter 4, verse 4. It says, Now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. And as we saw on the map earlier, going through Samaria would have been the most direct route But we also saw that it's not their traditional route that was traveled. Most, if not all, travelers would have gone down into the Jordan Valley, crossed the river, and crossed back, so to avoid Samaria. But Jesus had to go through Samaria. And I think think what's at play here is that he had to go through Samaria to complete the mission that was at hand for Jesus which I I believe was to interact with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well and to minister to all of the Samaritans, uh, which we'll see later in the chapter, specifically in verses 39 through 42. The question is, what missional impact does Jesus hope to accomplish by going through Samaria on his travels? Is it only to greet the woman at the well and to minister to her and to send her forth as an evangelist? Is it, is it only to do that and to meet all the Samaritans who are going to bring, and to bring them into the family of God? Or is there more at play? 
I believe that there's more at stake in this journey with his disciples, specifically in his necessity to go through Samaria. I believe this brief two-day stop in Samaria for Jesus and his disciples has as much, if not more, to do with the disciples and their formation as it does for the people of Samaria. So when they get to Samaria, Jesus and his disciples, because they had to go through on their way back to Galilee, Jesus is tired, and so he stops by Jacob's well to sit down. And it was about noon, so the disciples went into town to find lunch. While the disciples were tending to lunch, a woman, a Samaritan woman, has come to the well to retrieve some water. And this sets the stage for what Jesus is going to teach the disciples. The details of this engagement are important because it tells us, the reader, a lot about the characters that are being developed. The fact that this woman was coming to the well at noon when it was very hot is very telling. Generally, women in that culture would come to the well early in the morning while it was still cool. And they'd have community with other women in the community and meet their friends and acquaintances. But this woman was coming at noon when it was the hottest part of the day, likely to avoid seeing other people. But as soon as she arrives at the well, Jesus engages her in conversation and asks her for a drink. Which would have been the next big detail that would have drawn all of the readers into the story because Jewish men and Samaritan women would definitely not engage and definitely not to the point where he was asking her for a drink. So Jesus has fully engaged this woman in requesting a drink from her and talking to her about her many husbands, her current relationship. They even discuss worshiping God and what it truly means and that location is not critical, but worshiping in spirit and in truth is what's critical. And then this is when the disciples return to the scene. So Jesus has accomplished the first task in his objectives meeting the woman at the well ministering to her and then the second objective is started when the woman leaves the well and goes and proclaims the good news of the gospel to those in the Samaritan community when the disciples returned we see some insight into their curiosity verse 27 of chapter 4 reads Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking to her? I love this perspective because it allows us to see inside the minds of the disciples and how they were processing Jesus' behaviors. Their surprise likely would have led them to questions, but as John the author notes, they have all refrained from asking these questions. Over the past few weeks, I've started my mornings with a morning run listening to the autobiography of James H. Cohn. Cohn was an American theologian best known for his pioneering work in theology. While I was running last week, I found myself having to stop on the Twickenham Bridge to write down a quote from Cohn. He says, Love is a battle because we often don't want to see what others are trying to make us see. I thought this quote was applicable to today's story because I believe Jesus is trying to show his disciples that even the men and women from Samaria are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. When the disciples return and no one asks the question that we know they were all thinking, 
it shows me that they might not want to hear the answer. As we heard earlier, if we don't ask the question, we don't make space for the answer to fit. The story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman is seeking to break down the walls that existed between Jews and Samaritans. I believe Jesus is showing the disciples that love of Christ does not have barriers or dividers. But the disciples have grown up in a culture where many divisions and categories were constructed around gender, ethnicity, and race. Jesus is re-discipling the disciples as it pertains to the kingdom of God and who is truly invited. This story gives me so much hope. Jesus opens the eyes of the disciples to see what they have always believed as truth might not actually be true. Jesus empowers the Samaritan woman to be an evangelist, and she excels in the task. It says many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Not only is Jesus providing the disciples with a new framework of what the inclusivity of the kingdom truly looks like, Jesus is also empowering women to go forth and spread the gospel. This is truly the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, unless we open up that space for new relationships and new understandings, we miss out on this beautiful fulfillment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we continue to take that route that goes around that certain part of town or around those certain people, we continue to miss out on fully experiencing the kingdom that is here on earth. If Jesus hadn't insisted that the disciples go through Samaria, it's possible that they would have avoided Samaria for their whole lives. It's possible that the woman at the well would have lived in shame and guilt for the rest of her life. It's possible that she would have never had the opportunity to spread the good news of the gospel converting her Samaritan town. Growing up, I avoided certain parts of town and certain types of people because that's what I was instructed to do. But because of that, I missed out on potential relationships and mission-building relationships. Since moving to Lafayette, I've been intentional to connect with people across town from all different diverse populations. And it was a little over a year ago, I was having lunch with a group of pastors after church, and we were all discussing racism in our country and how our faith communities could work together to break down racism and to break down the divisions that existed here locally. The pastors present at the lunch were from white churches and black churches from all over our vast community. To start the lunch conversation, we began by introducing ourselves and telling a little bit about the history of where we grew up. It was about halfway around the table when a veteran pastor from our community started to introduce himself. He told the group that where he grew up, no one expected anything from him. No one expected him to have a future. No one expected that he would amount to anything. He said he felt the stigma on him and on his community. As he continued 
to introduce himself and talk about his history, he mentioned the specific location of where he grew up. And it was where I grew up, but it was where I was told to avoid. Since that lunch, I've been able to continue in relationship with that pastor. He has been able to prove that stigma and that stereotype very wrong. He's spent over 40 years working in ministry and continues to do so in our community. He spent over 30 years as a manager and a machinist in a big company. He started uh, and developed more than six successful businesses, and his primary organization was started to reach out to young men and women in Gary, Indiana, and throughout the state of Indiana to empower them and encourage them and motivate them to succeed unlike our, my community did for him. My perspective about the areas and the people in my life that I sought and was taught to avoid has changed. Just like I assumed the disciples' perspective about Samaria and the Samaritans' perspective had changed as well. However, just because our perspectives change does, that, does not mean that our behavior will follow. I still have to intentionally seek out new relationships that are different from myself. I still have to rewrite the narrative in my mind of what certain areas of town and certain types of people I was taught to avoid. So today, I ask the question, what areas in our lives are we avoiding because of the stigma and the narratives that we've been taught? What areas of our lives can we open up our eyes to see just like Jesus saw the Samaritan woman at the well? It's my prayer that we as a faith community can continue to break down the barriers and the walls that divide us and that we can see our community like Jesus sees our community. I pray that as we open up that space for new relationships to form, I pray that the kingdom would come here in Lafayette because of our obedience to the Spirit's lead. I pray that you and I together can open our eyes to see more like Jesus in the days, weeks, and months ahead. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, I thank you for your holy example. Your example that shows us that your love and the kingdom of God has no barriers. Your example through your son Jesus who shows us that we are to break down barriers and to extend the inclusivity of the gospel of your son Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be attentive to your spirit, that we would continue to move forward in mission, further sharing your love uh, throughout this community. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.